You know, my whole life, people have talked about being in God's word. You gotta be in God's word, you gotta be in God's word. That's right, but it's incomplete. I actually don't think that's good enough because it allows you, if you can be in God's word, not do anything with it, uh, I'm not sure that that's changed the world or preserved the world at all. It's not as much that you need to be in God's word, it's that you need to have God's word on the inside of you. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor Davison, bringing you truth and peace through God's Word. In this episode, we discuss the implications of sin and recognize the impact it has on our lives. Then we discover why it's okay to be a little salty. Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James with Sensitivity to Sin. Thanks for listening. Here Jesus said, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? How can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is God's word. We have to give a little bit of context, actually, to what we're looking at in our text here tonight. And so we have to jump back into the first lesson. And back in the first lesson, if you recall, it was Jesus' disciples who were arguing amongst one another which of them would be considered the greatest in the kingdom. And, you know, that tells us a bunch of things. Obviously, it says that they're, they struggle with pride. Beyond that, it also means that just in general, when humans think about greatness, we think about it in terms of striving. We think about it something we achieve, something we perform. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And when you approach greatness that way, what it inevitably does is it means that in life, you're always trying to get ahead of one another. You're using people. You're hurting people. Uh, you're always, like, uh, jockeying for position. Now, understand that when Jesus teaches this, uh, he's he's in the midst of all this, he has been talking about how he's very soon going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer and die. And therefore, the disciples are doing this like disrespectfully against the backdrop of, of Jesus' impending death. And so what he does, sensing that they don't quite understand the concept of greatness yet, is he takes a little child and he puts his arm around him And he says, the one who welcomes a little one like this is the one who understands greatness and is embracing the concept of kingdom greatness. And as they understand this to be a bit of a rebuke, what the disciples next do is they immediately change the conversation and they pivot to talking about a guy that they saw driving out demons in Jesus' name who was not one of them. He was not one of the chosen disciples. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't rebuke him. Don't stop him. Anybody who advances my kingdom in my name, even if he's not the category that you think he should be, let him continue to move forward. Now, 
it's, it's like three different incidents that seem like completely different things, and yet they actually, Mark knows exactly what he's doing. They fit together perfectly. Why? Because in the first instance, the disciples are arguing about greatness. In the second instance, the disciples are failing to recognize the greatness of a little child. And in the third instance, uh, the disciples are resenting the greatness of somebody who isn't like, quote unquote, one of them. In each case, it demonstrates the fact that they have an extraordinarily worldly sense of greatness that needs to be deprogrammed out of them. And they only understand greatness in terms of merit. They only understand greatness in terms of performance. And when that is your approach to greatness in life, it's always going to lead you to devalue the little ones of the world. The relevant question, I think, for Christians then is, what if God looked at you like that? You know, what if God evaluated humanity according to your basic performance? And thank God he doesn't do that. And therefore, by definition, the godly way to look at somebody, the godly way to value somebody is not to see what do they have the capacity to do in this lifetime. It's to see and measure how much their soul weighs in eternity. If everybody perceived others the way God then perceived that way, You'd finally have peace on earth. And in fact, uh, at the end, when everybody does value human beings that way, the kingdom will have finally come. And that brings us into our text. So it's verses 42 through 48. Jesus begins with a bit of a sobering statement here. Verse 42, where he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. A couple things you got to say about that. First of all, stumble. What he means by stumble is very clearly like leads them into sin uh, or especially leads them into unbelief and away from Jesus, faith in Jesus. The second thing is the millstone thing. I'm not going to assume that all of us are familiar with baking bread in the ancient world. So let's just say, you know, a lot of us don't even eat bread today. In the ancient world, bread was made. So either you had a a stone that was one that a woman would use to grind grain, or you had what was called a millstone, which was a very large, it could only be essentially turned by a donkey moving it. And what you see here is like a form of execution. And it would have been known as something that was very clearly a pagan execution. Jewish people, when they were commanded by God to execute somebody, did not execute them this way, did not execute them at sea. And actually, the ancient world, the folklore attached to it was if somebody died at sea, the belief was that their soul sort of haunted the sea from there on out. You can see that in a couple of different Bible stories. Uh, but they believed that the, uh, the folklore was that your soul would essentially just hover over the waters for all eternity. Jesus isn't saying that. What he is saying is he's trying to invoke in his disciples an understanding of the seriousness of sin. In fact, he's not just saying, I want you to be serious about your personal sins. He's saying, I want you to be serious about how the way you're living your life may be leading other people potentially into sin. And namely, he says, it actually would be better if you weren't even born or if you had, uh, were drowned in the sea. Now that is uh, provocative and a little like culturally insensitive and whatever, but he just, he just turns up the volume after that. Uh, it gets worse. He says, actually, if you have anything in your life that is leading you into sin and Bible commentators will say he's using what's called Semitic hyperbole here, but I don't actually even think it's hyperbolic. I think he's actually maybe being more literal than we might think. He says, if your hand causes you to sin or your foot or your eye, you should cut it off or gouge it out because it's better for you to enter eternal life maimed than to have the whole thing be pulled down into hell. 
Now, this is where it's sort of helpful to read the Bible all the way through in a book, at least, as opposed to just fragments here and there. Because if you were here a couple weeks ago, we were in Mark chapter 7, and Jesus makes, says something that clarifies this. In Mark 7, he said, it's not really what's on the outside of a person that makes them unclean. It, it's what comes from the inside out. It's what's from their heart that works its way out into their life. It's pride in the heart that is the real problem, Right? So it isn't the external things that your feet are causing you to sin technically or your hands are causing you to sin or your eyes are causing you to sin. It's your heart that is telling your brain to use your feet and your hands and your eyes to sin. The problem at the end of the day is actually pride that exists in the heart. Uh, I heard something on this recently that I just thought was great. I know I've mentioned a couple times the Gospel Coalition podcast, but I recently listened to a talk called Sexuality, Identity, and Loving Our Neighbor. And one of the women who was on the panel for this talk, her name is Jackie Hill Perry. She's a New York Times bestselling author. I think some of you have probably read some of her work. Uh, But she sort of famously, in her Christian conversion, left an actively lesbian lifestyle. And one of the things she says about her conversion experience in this panel discussion, she says, the woman who discipled me, first of all, I love that statement. It means that when she became a Christian, there was another person relationally a couple steps ahead of her who was guiding her along. And she was speaking very boldly and transparently into her life. The woman who discipled me said to me, Jackie, sexuality isn't actually your biggest or primary issue. It's your heart. If anything, we need to deal with how arrogant and prideful you are. And she started laughing a little bit and she said, you know, everybody else was essentially trying to just address the sexuality issue in my life. And she said, well, in reality, what the real issue was is I was proud. I was arrogant. And she said, you know, pride can manifest itself in a variety of different ways in somebody's life. But the issue at the end of the day is actually the pride and arrogance and rebellion that exists in our hearts. We'll get back to that more. But the, the question then is, If pride is the real issue, why doesn't Jesus just say, okay, stop being so proud. Take the pride out of your heart. Change your heart. The problem with that is it's just extraordinarily abstract. And when people don't understand what it means to change your heart, he has to turn up his volume too. And he says, okay, so it's like this. If your pride is telling your brain to use your hand to sin, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye and toss it it down into the valley because it's better for you to enter eternal life maimed than to go down into the valley and be destroyed as a soul eternally. He's talking about, in other words, the seriousness of sin. He's taking sin in a way that uh, is more serious than, than really any of us. And actually, I'm going to push it one step further here because he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 66, verse 24. It's the last verse here, uh, verse 48. He says, Then, that's the place where the worms eat bodies and do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Now, in simple terms, the concept of hell is one uh, we understand as like eternal torment. But I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of modern people, in a way that even 20 years ago, they didn't have issue with it. A lot of people, a lot of people who self-identify as Christian, If I even mention the concept of hell or say things about hell that Jesus said about hell, they immediately start to push back. The reason for that is it's very difficult intellectually to reconcile the idea of a place of eternal torment with an unconditionally loving God. And they're almost like offended by the concept. And what I've come to find over (laughs) the years is that just trying to give an apologetic for reconciling those two things. I think it can be done, but I don't know that it actually moves the needle all that much in explaining how you can reconcile the two. 
what I've come to challenge people more on is the idea, okay, is there anything in your life that you cannot intellectually reconcile and yet you still have to live, live in the middle of? Yes, there's tons of things. If I asked any one of you to describe the dimensions of the universe that you live in, I guarantee that almost no one, I'm pretty sure, could come in any level of accuracy about describing the conditions and the dimensions of the universe, and yet you occupy space in it every day, don't you? Therefore, it's entirely possible to have something that you can't intellectually reconcile and yet live according to, and in fact... What people need to understand is your ability to intellectually grasp and resolve something lends nothing to its validity or objective reality. We like to think it does because of arrogance and pride. And I think sometimes when people push off the idea of the eternal torment of hell with me, what they're doing is I think they're getting moral disgust to some extent at it. And again, I understand all of that. It's moral disgust with a place of eternal torment. But that doesn't just make it go away, you know? Like, it's still there, and it's just amount of blinding pride or arrogant pride that would cause you to think that does anything about it. Souls were created to exist forever. They're the most precious thing in the universe. They're going to occupy space somewhere for forever. Doesn't it make sense that we would primarily listen to the one individual who died, descended down into hell, came back and gave a testimony about it that we would say, like, yeah, uh, it would be foolish for us to ignore what he primarily has to say about it. And nobody says more about the concept of the seriousness of sin in hell than Jesus does. That brings us into the last point, uh, number three, the, the be salt. Be salt to preserve the world from this uh, punishment. Jesus starts talking about salt, and it's one of those things that I'm not surprised Jesus' disciples are confused frequently whenever he starts talking because he says things that are so profound that you can't just at first glance grasp them. Like you have to meditate on them for a little bit while, for a little while. It's like, why is he talking about seasoning all of a sudden? And the answer is like, he's not talking about seasoning. That's another cultural filter. We tend to think of salt as a seasoning. In the ancient world, remember, no refrigeration. Salt was as much or more a preservative as it was a seasoning. And therefore, when Jesus, for instance, on the Sermon on the Mount says, I want you to be the salt of the earth, essentially what he's saying is, I want you to be so filled with my spirit, so filled with my word, that when you shake yourself out into the world, into the meat of humanity, you preserve the goodness in it and you bring out the best flavoring of it. Now, what Jesus is going to do here in this text is he's adding to it this concept. It's the last verse here, verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? See, this is another thing that in modern times we don't get because we don't have salt that loses saltiness. We have purified salt. In the ancient world, you had impure salt. And impure salt can lose, it can lose its saltiness. It can lose its qualities. And what Jesus is essentially saying here then is if you reflect the exact same value system as everybody else out there in the world, you're of no use to the world. You're of no use to advancing the kingdom. If you lose your saltiness, how do you get salty? <laughs> you, get, you get salted by being filled with God's word. If you compromise God's word, if you neglect God's word, if you willfully defy God's word, you are of no use to advancing the kingdom out there in the world because you've lost all of your saltiness. You know, in my whole life, people have talked about being in God's word. 
You got to be in God's word. You got to be in God's word. That's right, but it's incomplete. I actually don't think that's good enough because it allows you, if you can be in God's word, not do anything with it. Uh, I'm not sure that that's changed the world or preserved the world at all. It's not as much that you need to be in God's word. It's that you need to have God's word on the inside of you. Because then when you shake in your life, then you're preserving the rest of the world. I've mentioned to some of you before, I know you've heard me say this, that it's amazing to me. It was a revelation to me, absolutely, when the first time I learned that Jesus, when he's on the cross, uh, he has all these amazing sayings that we go through every Lent and, and think about. And I think for the longest time in my life, I thought he was just giving these visceral groans about how much pain he was in and how much suffering he was going through. And it was an absolute revelation to me, the idea that he's quoting scripture most of the time. Like, so when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not just like some lament that he's issuing because he's in pain. He's quoting scripture. He's literally quoting from the beginning of Psalm 22. And the idea is when Jesus is pierced, he bleeds out scripture. Are you and me like that? To the degree, to the degree that we are filled with God's word, the spirit uses us as salt to preserve and even like save the planet. Okay, so what does this mean? I got three application points for you. The first one we already touched on pretty considerably. It's just, so I'll keep it brief. Take sin seriously. And what we establish is there is a pride in all of our hearts. There is a pride in all of our hearts that leads us to do something to not take God's word and therefore not take sin seriously. And the pride that exists in our hearts leads us to believe we, th- we know better than God what we need to be happy in life. We think, We can compromise with God's word so long as there's other people that I can point to that are doing worse with it, right? And the third thing is we misinterpret God's patience with us in life as God not taking sin very seriously. Let me just say that again because I I think this is important to keep in mind. We think we know better than God what we need in order to be happy in life. Uh, When the, the designer gave us a blueprint and says, this is what will make you finally fulfilled. Number two, we compromise and barter with God's word and say, yeah, I maybe broke it a little bit, but that person over there is breaking it a ton. And therefore, as long as I'm better than they are, then God should judge me differently. And number three, we misinterpret when God is extraordinarily patient, when he doesn't throw down lightning bolts every time we sin. We interpret that as weakness and apathy and like a lack of seriousness about sin. And what we need to know then is we need to look at sin that exists in our life, both the bad that we do and the good that we fail to do. And we need to approach it with all the seriousness of like surgery. Now, I talked a little bit, used the analogy of surgery last week a little bit. I'm going to want to come back to it because it's really helpful. And actually, it's the analogy that Jesus uses in our text. This was a revelation to me, again, this week. Every, every time I study and prepare, I learn or see something new. But when Jesus says, look, if your foot causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not saying like the, the foot is neutral and the hand is useful and they're, they're actually very, very neutral and useful in life. But sometimes sin attaches it itself to a part of your life that in order to cut out the sin, you have to cut out the otherwise useful thing. So like if you're going to go in and, and take out the cancerous tumor, there's odds are in order to make sure it's clean and it's fully out, you're going to have to cut out some good cells around it too, right? What does that look like practically in our lives? Let me give you one example. I am absolutely convinced in the next 10 years, you are going to find a ton of guys. So long as there are still cell phones, if there are cell phones, you're going to find tons of guys and maybe some women too, but I know especially guys who move away from smartphones. You know why? Because they've found that they 
struggle immensely with their vices on their devices. Like these devices are extraordinarily powerful and yet that's the problem because when your sinful nature grabs onto something powerful and it flexes it in the direction of your inordinate desires, it makes you unhealthy in your attachment to it. So if you knew, like if you were in tune with the same statistics and research that I stay plugged into regarding the way that guys struggle with their vices on their devices, uh, I think you would agree with me. And it's not just cell phones, you know this. Uh, it's anything that could be neutral. Uh, it could be our social media. It could be food. It could be alcohol. It could be dating. It could be any number of different things. And you say, well, those things are, they're not bad. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying they're neutral. I'm saying, however, when your sin gets a hold of them, and if your sin uses them to give you unusual access to temptation that you clearly cannot manage, guess what? You have to cut it out. Now, what does cutting it out look like? Again, I'm not saying, everybody knows a cell phone is useful. I'm not saying a cell phone isn't useful. A foot's useful too. And a hand is useful too. And sometimes if you've got to get sin out of your life, you've got to cut the whole thing out. And that's a sacrifice that's totally worth it because Jesus says, it's better to enter into eternity completely maimed than to have that lose your soul. And, you know, there's, there's something else here that's kind of cool. Jesus uses the term, the term that he uses for hell in this text, three times in a row. It's verse 43, 45, and 47. He uses the word Gehenna. It's translated as hell. But Gehenna is essentially a Hellenistic transliteration of a Hebrew term, the Hebrew term for the Hinnom Valley. Interestingly, that's a literal place. It's a place outside of Jerusalem that was a perpetually burning garbage dump. And Jesus is using it as an analogy and saying, you don't want to live there. So like if you have to cut the cell phone out of your life because it too easily gives you access to sin, toss it over the hill into the Valley of Hinnom so that you don't eventually get carried down into the Valley of Hinnom. See, Jesus is encouraging the seriousness of sin here. Uh, us to take it seriously. One other thing I want to add about this, I know it's easy for a preacher to say like, yeah, get the sin out of your life and kind of thing. And, and it's very like abstract. And let me, so let me give you something tangible. Okay. One of the things I did is I, I give these out to, uh, sometimes to people during counseling. It's the number 90 divided into 90 blocks. Okay. One of the reasons that I will do this is uh, I know the research on uh, addiction and, and attachment that if you have something in your life that is an optional thing that you cannot let go of for 30 days, it typically means you have a detrimental over-attachment, hyper-attachment to it. So for instance, you, can, you can't go without 30 days uh, or go without water for 30 days. You can go without alcohol for 30 days, but if you can't go without alcohol for 30 days, it means you probably have some kind of detrimental, unhealthy hyperattachment to it, right? Now, the, the research also says that in order for you to become unattached from it, unfortunately, it doesn't mean you just have to be unattached for 30 days. To rewire your brain on it, you now have to be unattached from it for 90 days. If you cannot hitch those, hit those benchmarks, 30 days or 90 days, you know what you have to do? You have to cut deeper into your life to cut something out that disallows that type of activity and behavior. I know it's not easy, uh, but this is the, the seriousness of, of sin that Jesus is talking about. There is nothing worth forfeiting your soul. So anything in this life, even if you enjoy it, it's worth cutting out and throwing over the hill, over the cliff, right? Okay, second application. Sensitivity to little ones. Jesus has this brilliantly subtle point 
that is so easy to miss, uh, but it's, it's really good here. The disciples are talking about the greatest. He takes a little child, he embraces the little child, and he says, one who welcomes a little child is one who is, yeah, the, the little ones and causes them to stumble. Uh, it's actually better if they're not, or if they wouldn't be born or if they would die. The interesting thing is, he doesn't use children twice here, though. He could have said kids again. He could have said uh, children again. He doesn't say that. He says little ones, very intentionally. And here's why. The Greek word is the word mikron, and it means not just like little ones in age or little ones in size, but little ones in importance. It's a reference to the unimportant. Now, remember what the context is. It's the disciples who had been arguing about who is the greatest. And so what Jesus does is he takes a little child and he brings him right to him, puts his arms around him, and he's doing this for two reasons. Number one, because especially in ancient times, children, little children, were not considered socially important. And number two, little children also have very little grasp of the concept of social importance. Have you ever noticed this about little kids? Little children, they don't really have a grasp of the size of anything. Uh, actually, it's physically true, but it's especially socially true. Little kids, it's why we, with, if you have a little baby and you put the baby in front of you and you play the game so big, you know the game, right? And you say, how big are you? And you take their arms and you stretch them out and you say, so big. Developmentally, what you're doing is you're teaching them relative size. You're not this big, you're this big, right? Because like, a child just doesn't understand that. They don't get... They have no spatial intelligence. They, they, they're constantly smacking things. They're constantly running into things. They walk around like they're drunk all the time, stumbling and toddling, and they have no spatial intelligence. But what's interesting is as little as they get spatially, they actually, socially, they understand size even less. And I can prove it really quickly. If you ask a bunch of 18-year-olds in high school, who's the most popular kid in school? Every single one of them knows. They might, not, they might come to different conclusions, but they all have an opinion about it. If you ask a bunch of five-year-olds in kindergarten, who is the coolest kid in the class? They have no clue what you're talking about because they're all weirdos. And I mean, it's, it's a 25-way tie for the weirdest kid. They don't get that kind of stuff. And it's actually kind of beautiful because they have this amazingly liberated absence of like social restriction because they don't they don't conceive of who's high and who's low, who's important, who's unimportant, who's wealthy, who's poor, who's popular, who's not popular. They don't conceive of any of that kind of stuff. And actually, you know, there's a lot of things about little kids that you probably shouldn't emulate, but it's that aspect of little kids, that aspect of childlikeness, that you do not perceive people through the lens of what are you capable of performing in this world. That Jesus says, I want you to emulate that. And what it means is we all have to be more sensitive to the little ones. Again, who are the little ones? Well, of course it includes kids, but it's not only kids. It's the weak, it's the poor, it's the marginal. This is mind-blowing to me. Jesus in here is saying something about the way you know that you, the kingdom has come into your heart. The way you know the kingdom has come into your heart, to some extent, Christ's kingdom has come into your heart, is when you start willfully engaging with people at the bottom of the social ladder. Because it means you're whole value system has been completely disrupted at that point. We tend to inherit different traits from our parents. Last week, uh, Aiden and I were visiting my sister's family, and one of the things that she mentioned was my nephew and my brother-in-law, his dad, have the exact same kind of distinct laugh. And I said, well, to some extent, laugh is like a, it's like a socially conditioned sort of thing. 
And what it dawned on me then is, as a Christian, if that's an inherited thing, as a Christian, when you start valuing people without regard to worldly performance, it is evidence that you are a child of a heavenly father who does not regard people according to worldly performance. Think fallen people, fallen individuals do this all the time. We care about and evaluate people on the basis of worldly performance, but God looks at us like through the lens of a child. Namely, he's not that impressed by what we accomplish, accomplish in life. He's not that impressed by our attributes in life. And therefore, my challenge to you, I think, moving forward is this. When you go out into the world, when you move out this week, challenge yourself to figure out when you walk into a room, are you instantaneously, non-consciously drawn to the most beautiful people in the room, the most uh, the funniest people in the room, the most, the most charming, the people in the room who can get you ahead? Or are you noticing, like, the marginalized? Are you noticing the coworker who, like, clearly is not doing very well? They started to withdraw from the team a little bit. Are you noticing the kid in class that nobody else clearly ever wants to sit by? Are you noticing the elderly individual that life has just gotten hard as their body starts to break down and they just need a hand? Are you noticing the foreign person who lives nearby you who's struggling to navigate like a different culture? Are you noticing the people who have nothing inside of them that would draw you to them? Because God notices that, and in fact, God loved us enough to become that in switching places with us in order to make us eternally beautiful. That brings me to the last point. I'm just going to call it believing in the original salted sacrifice. So I think the question is, where do you get the motivation to love somebody who they're not going to help you feel better about yourself? They're not going to open doors for you in life? They're probably going to drain you. Like, in every way, money, time, energy. They're, how do you choose to love somebody like that? I think the only motivation comes when you realize that's exactly what God chose to do for you in Christ. Many Bible commentators, they've made this point that when Jesus references us being the salt of the earth, they're almost undoubtedly, when he brings it up, there's probably an allusion there to uh, Leviticus 2, a salted sacrifice. So fortunately, uh, in my devotional reading this past week, I actually just kind of stumbled upon Leviticus 2. I'm going through Leviticus and reading a chapter and a couple commentaries on it. But in Leviticus 2.13, it says this, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So grain offering was seasoned with salt. Grain, you weren't allowed to use yeast or honey, which is stuff that otherwise people typically at that time would put into bread, but you weren't allowed to do that because yeast and honey actually compromise the integrity of the bread. It causes it to decay faster, but salt, it preserves it. It makes it last longer. And therefore, to add salt to an offering was a reminder to the worshiper of their preservation. They have been preserved in an eternally right relationship with God. And what Jesus is suggesting is when you consume him as the bread of life, when you're filled with his word and therefore filled with his spirit and his saltiness, you're then and only then are you capable of preserving the good that exists in the world. This works well as it's coming together with us communing together tonight. And when you come for the Lord's Supper, part of what's happening here is you're being filled up with Christ's body and blood. And what I want you to understand and think about is that Jesus Christ gave up his status of heaven 
and came down to earth. But it wasn't like, I want you to understand the humility in that. He had to grind himself down. Like he had to put a millstone on top of himself to grind himself down, an infinite God, into like a finite six-foot space. As if that wasn't enough to become the ultimate sacrifice for us, he also ground himself down even further because he so desperately wanted to communicate to you and me that you are loved by God, forgiven of all your sins by God, gifted the righteousness of God. He so desperately wanted to communicate that that he ground himself down even further into bread and wine. And he says, okay, he distilled it. When you consume this, when you consume the cost of your salvation, you're filled up with him and made salty. And in a sense, you know, not only does it preserve you, in a sense, it's a little bit of like a Benjamin Button thing. It makes you younger. It makes you more childlike. And, uh, you know, for all that we said about kids, there's some beautiful qualities about kids. Uh, one of the most beautiful is the, perhaps the fact that they hold two concepts together that almost no adult does. They hold the concept I already talked about. They have this genuine social humility, but they also have a total expectation of love. Those two things together are pretty amazing. Have you ever noticed that in a little kid, they just assume that you want to listen to them? They assume that you want to hold them? They don't, I like, they have, no, they have no regard for the adult's affairs that you're talking about right now. And they just assume. And when you become a child of God, what it does for you is it pushes these two things together in an extraordinary way. You lose your earthly sense, your worldly value system in the way you evaluate people. And yet at the exact same time, when you know that you are a child of your father in heaven, you start expecting with a level of confidence. You expect that he loves you. You expect that he forgives you. You expect that he affirms you and you expect that he's going to take care of you. It makes you simultaneously more humble and more bold. And that's a humility and boldness that the fallen world and distinguished adults actually know very little about. It's a humility and boldness that when pushed together causes you to bring greatness to the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, fill us with your word. And use us to advance your kingdom, preserving good for humanity in a flavor and a usefulness that delights you, an aroma that lights you, Lord. We live as sacrifice salted with your word to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about TEL, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.